Well, as many of you know, right, for a couple years now, we uh, have faced some trials as a nation, which has really sifted down uh, into the church as well. We, we faced a barrage of divisive issues. First of all, the, the COVID ban- pandemic has been a, a very divisive thing, brought much division in the church. I, I've talked to many pastors, heard many pastors talk about trying to navigate the waters and, um, you know, the, leading as best they could with all the wisdom and grace they could muster, right? Yet people have still left churches. Um, I'm not sure what the church attendance is in America today as it was a couple of years ago. I suspect it's down as people don't want to gather. And um, based upon a, a church, you got people been too strict on mask requirements, too loose on mask requirements. People left on both sides. It's the it's, it's, um, same across the nation. And really what I think that's done is really exposed our church. We're not united on the gospel as we once thought. As we really proclaim, we're united in Jesus. And uh, really, there are other things that unite us, sadly. Um, but here it is, there's one. Uh, secondly, the racial conflict in our country has brought much division to the church. Some high-profile cases have been brought to the surface, whether it's George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Marcus Arbery and and churches have sought to deal with this uh, racial unrest. There's been a lot of division in churches. Um, some churches have forsaken the gospel to attempt to solve the racial problem in our country. Uh, other churches have been silent on the injustices done in our nation. I- I've heard of pastors who've tried to address the issue. And just when they mention the word justice, it, it, there's been so much baggage to that word and so much read into that word. Uh, there's been great uprising in their churches before they even really began to talk. It's almost like that word is too toxic for many people to handle today. And even in our church, I've been, I've been called, Steve, you're going liberal at Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm not sure if you've sensed a change, but just the division. Further, the political divide in our nation has uh, entered the church as well. President Trump was super polarizing, not merely in the world, but also in the church as well. Then came the elections. And, and the divide about whether fraudulent or not. Uh, a divide about January 6th and whether that, what, what that was. And, and there's, there's division. The media has fanned the flame. One side, you, you hear the far-left liberalism. On the one other side, you have far-right conservatism. And each side saying, oh, no, they're, they're just lying. It's opinions. Geist and facts. And gets back, but it gets views. That's the key. But it's divided our nations. Division has entered the church. And I say as we navigate these waters, we continue to navigate these waters, we as a church need wisdom. Um, we need to have wisdom in navigating these things. That, that They have power to rip the church in half. And we need wisdom to keep the unity of the church. Well, this morning we come to our passage in Acts 15. We're going to see a church in need of wisdom actually keep the unity of the church. We see a church split, a, uh, a church threatened to split in two. The church is being threatened to have a Gentile church and a Jewish church. The, the Jewish church would be the, the church that, that accepted Jesus as the Messiah and yet still adhered to the, the culture of the Mosaic law. And the Gentile church would be the church that, that believes that the gospel comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and doesn't follow after the law. And the, these two competing sort of churches it, it could have branched like that. The stakes were high in the early church. That really a division there could have meant division even down to our day. Yet today, it's interesting, we face divisions 
Believers simply pick up and go to another church that meets their fancy, that, that believes the same political things they do, or believes the same thing about COVID that they do, or, or racially is aligned like, like they do. That wasn't possible in the early church. It, it could split in two and have two different churches. Now, I'm thankful um, that in the end, this division never took place. We read about it in Acts 15. It never took place because of the great wisdom of James, as he exhibited the Jerusalem Council that we've been looking at the last few weeks in Acts 15. You can open your Bibles there is where we're going to be again. We've been here the last couple weeks. And this council came in Jerusalem because of the unprecedented number of Gentiles that were coming to faith in Christ. And the council was gathered to figure out, okay, all these Gentiles are coming into the church. We have a lot of Jewish people in the church. What are we going to require of these Gentiles? Like, are we going to require them to be circumcised? Are we going to require them to submit to the law of Moses or or not? And and on one hand, right, we had Jews so ingrained in their religion that they found it difficult for anyone to, to believe that anyone could really be acceptable to God apart from the ancient Jewish order. This is always the way they came to God. And now Jesus comes to your Messiah. He's going to still bring God people to God that way. That was one side. And the other side, you had those um, like Barnabas and Paul who said salvation comes apart from the works of the law. It comes simply by believing and trusting in Jesus apart from the rituals, uh, apart from the ceremonies. And these two sides couldn't agree in Antioch. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 2, they had no small dissension and debate with each other. They're arguing back and forth, like, are you right? Are we right? I'm right. You're right. No. And, and, and they couldn't agree. You know, the, on the one hand, you said, no, the Gentiles must be circumcised. And on the other hand, no, the, the Gentiles are saved by grace apart from the law. And on the one hand, you say, the sign of the of circumcision has always been the sign of the covenant. And then the other side, you know, says that, no, the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit apart from being circumcised. And this went back and forth. And then at some point, verse 7, we see Peter standing up. He gives his speech, and he argues with his experience of everything he experienced from the Gentiles. How God called him to go to preach to the Gentiles, the home of Cornelius. They believed in the gospel, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them without ever them being circumcised. And he concluded, verse 11, he said, We believe that we will be saved, that is the Jews, we Jews will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they Gentiles will. Salvation is the same way is what Peter said. After this, all the assembly fell silent. It's almost as if Peter's words swayed the day based upon his experience about what God did with him. And then Paul and Barnabas related their experience. We see that in, uh, in verse 12. Paul and Barnabas related what signs and wonders God had done with them. Basically, they, they uh, recapped their missionary journey which is in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And, and the message basically affirmed what Peter said. He said, you remember, right, we were sent out by the grace of God. When believers came to faith, we urged them to continue in the grace of God, not the works of the law. And as they spoke to believers, it was the word of his grace that went out and spread so much. And then finally, James spoke. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, beginning in, in verse 13. And James' words, the wisdom of James' words, Sway the day. And with his words, the debate ended. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It can be expected that James would end the debate because he had so much respect from the people in Jerusalem. He was the half-brother of Jesus who uh, came to faith after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. 
He appeared explicitly to James, almost as if he's setting him up to be a, a key influencer in the church. If you understood Jesus as well as James did, you think about that. James grew up with Jesus. He saw how he lived. He heard what he said. And he then eventually trusted in Jesus. And with a family connection, he, he rose to prominence. So much so, Paul would call him, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, a pillar of the church. Right? Just that, that steady, firm one in the church. This is James. He was respected, and so it's, it's expected that his counsel would be, be followed. But another reason why his counsel was followed, because it was saturated with wisdom. He addresses this difficult issue of the church, was about to divide in two, and he, and he speaks it in such a way with, that, that comes with firmness, and yet it comes with, with tact and grace and gentleness and kindness as he considers all the parties involved. And I believe that in many ways his wisdom saved the unity of the church. The wisdom of James as he put forth his conclusion, his judgment in this matter. My title of my message this morning is entitled Keeping Unity. Because that's what we see James doing in his speech. I mean, unity is great. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 33, 133, verse 1. And uh, James brings these people, keeps these people in unity, unified on the gospel. And this took great wisdom. And it's to be expected because James is a wise man. He wrote a book of the Bible. You remember what book it was called? What did James write? He wrote the book of James, right? And uh, if anything, James is a book of wisdom. In fact, uh, in many ways, you could call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. Just abounds with wisdom. And so here the wisdom of James. As he speaks here, we see verse 13 setting the stage. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. And when James speak, people listen. And the whole assembly was quiet, would be all ears to hear what this wise man would say. And he says this, verse 14. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. These words basically contain the recommendation of James um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't putting this down. This is the judgment of what we have. This is the, the recommendation of James that eventually it was received by the entire council. You see that in verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church, right, to, 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 to choose men and to send them to Antioch with this united uh, council that James had given. And uh, this, this recommendation really set then the direction of the church. And uh, in the words of James, we see, Discernment. This is my, my first point here. Keeping unity right requires some discernment uh, among all of us. Uh, James begins by summarizing Peter's speech here in verse 14. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
Now, it's, it's interesting how he, he couched this, verse 14. He, first of all, uses Peter's Hebrew name, which is Simeon. Um, brings Peter back to his Hebrew roots before he ever followed Jesus. And that's what makes Peter's pro-Gentile speech so stunning. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet it was through him that the gospel came to the Gentiles. And Peter was all in in affirming the Gentiles members of the new covenant apart from circumcision. And more importantly, so was God. It was God who visited the Gentiles. And it was God who took a people for his name. Now what's stunning about this summary of... uh, uh, of James summarizing Peter's talk, is that he says, God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. But, but you think, if you know the Old Testament, right? if, if you know the, the broader, Israel is the people who've been taken by God for his name's sake. You can see that over and over again. Just listen to Isaiah 43. Several verses in here. Fear not, O Israel, I've redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. You are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you. Fear not, I'm with you. Everyone who is called by my name. Of all the nations of the earth, Israel, the Jews, were called by God, called by his name. And yet here, James says, God took the Gentiles from the Gentiles. He took them a people for his name. Now that would be like... For the Jewish people, really, to understand. And then he turns to Scripture, <clears throat> James does, and he argues that this is exactly what the Old Testament said. Uh, look in verse 15. <clears throat> and with this, <clears throat> excuse me, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This quote comes from Amos 9, which we read as a congregation. Here it is God promising the restoration of the people of Israel after a time of judgment, right? This tent of David has been destroyed. And in those days after that, he's going to rebuild this tent of David that's fallen. He's going to rebuild his ruins. He's going to restore it. Now, there's much difficulty, much theological debate in terms of what exactly this means. There's a range of interpretation, uh, particularly, right? That just Why does James quote um, not quite agree with the Hebrew text, even though we read earlier? The w- words are a little bit different. Is it the Masoretic text he's reading from? Is it the Septuagint he's reading from? Why, why is it? And what are we to do with these differences? And, and, and when exactly is God promising to do this? What's the tent of David? What does it mean for the Lord to rebuild this tent? And how does this passage really help with the debate with, the, with Jerusalem? Now, those are lots of things I researched this week. I sought to understand them, and, and I'm still confused a little bit. But it swayed the day, and it helped them. Here, here's my take from best I can tell. I think it's like much of Old Testament prophecy that, that has some sort of fulfillment, and it's fulfilled in stages. You, you just think about uh, on the day of Pentecost. Peter says that what was prophesied in the prophet Joel happened in the speaking of tongues, and yet there were some things there that clearly didn't happen. It started there at the, the time of the pouring out of the Spirit to the Gentiles, on the Jews, and, but there'd be a greater time in the time of judgment. The sun would be darkened and the, the moon would be darkened and, and um, right, the great terrible day of the Lord would come. That, that's awaiting a future day, and I, and I think here there's a, a similar 
thing going on in the days of Jesus. Jesus was the Messianic king. He was the tent of David. He did come out of the line of David, yet he was struck down, ruined, and destroyed. And yet in the resurrection, God did rebuild him. Just starting something new. And I think that what God's doing is he's going to start and build this church, which ultimately is going to be formally rebuilt when all Israel comes to the Lord. Romans 11 speaks about that. So in any way, right, the the purpose of this rebuilding, though, at at the end of the day, I I think this whole point in verse 17, this is what you might want to outline as well, is that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. There it is. All the Gentiles who are called by my name. James points out this is exactly what Peter said. Peter's Peter's sermon, his his speech was basically that that God is called out of the Gentiles to be for his name. Exactly like Amos 9 prophesies. And James connects the dots. He argues this is a time. This is a time when God is bringing the Gentiles to himself. And although James only mentions Peter... Paul and Barnabas would have affirmed the exact same thing. They saw the Gentiles come to faith on their missionary journey in Paphos and Antioch and Iconium. Seemingly everywhere where Paul and Barnabas went, God was doing this great work of bringing the Gentiles to faith in Christ. And and I trust, here is my point, discernment. I I trust you see the way that James came to his conclusion. Um, it, It wasn't necessarily the experience of Peter alone that guided his reasoning nor the experience of Paul and Barnabas. It was a testimony of Scripture. It was his understanding of, of Amos 9, that God was doing a work among the Gentiles to call the people for his name. And that's James' discernment. Taking what's happening in the day, taking Scripture, matching those up, and coming to a conclusion. That's what discernment is. And that's what James did. And that was great wisdom. And that's what we need today. Discernment. Right? We need to be able to take the events of the day, of life, filter them through the Scriptures, and understand the truth of Scripture, and let Scripture then guide us how it is that we ought to respond. And that could be on a national level, like some of these things I'm talking about, whether it's a COVID or the, the racial matters or political matters, right? What, what, what do we do when a, a nation right, places upon us restrictions we don't like? What does the Scripture teach us to respond? How are we to honor the king? How are we to submit to the government? Yet how are we to command and worship the Lord? How are we to understand that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of a Lord? Like how do you put all those things together to respond? And, and discernment will give you the ability to see and understand the events of the day, filter them through Scripture, and then walk in the right way. And, and that can be on a, a personal level. You need discernment on a personal level too. Like uh, if you're dealing with a foolish person at work who always shows up late and back talks against the boss. Like how, how do you deal with that? Well, Proverbs might talk about that. Or how do you deal with a difficult person at church? Right? A person just kind of irks you a little bit. Scriptures speak about that as well. Or what conflict with your spouse? How do you deal with conflict with your spouse? Or a rebellious child? How do you deal with that? Discernment will give you the ability to take what's happening in life, match it with Scripture, use the principles of Scripture in order to tie it. And it's not always like real cut and dry. Like even here, Amos 9, it's not so cut and dry. But James discerned, and James knew. Discernment also is helpful, maybe some huge decision, right, that, that you need to make. How would God guide you in these things? How, how should you seek counselors? How should you seek Scripture? And Scripture is your guide. You will, you will find discernment there. And 
So I just I want you to think about here that the sermon of James He's a leader in the church. God inspired him to write a book of the New Testament. Um, when he was seeking wisdom, how to respond to this debate right, between those who believe circumcision is necessary and those who thought salvation was by, by grace alone through faith alone. Right. What did James do? He went to the, the scriptures for wisdom, went to Amos nine. And really, it's what we ought to do. But it's interesting. He didn't, Amos just he just pulled it from memory. It's not like he said, uh, let me think about that. Let me go to my library. And then James is back there going, oh, where is this? He knew the scriptures well. So he could kind of like filter them through. And so then he could come to a conclusion. Amos 9. He knew Amos 9 pretty well. How many of you know Amos 9 pretty well? <laughs> I don't know it very well, right? We know, but, but that was the Old Testament. That's all they had. He didn't have the New Testament. We have the New Testament. How many of you know the New Testament well? To be able to, good, absolutely, wonderful, right? We got to know the New Testament. We got to know the Bible, and that's just you know, it's why we need to be familiar with our Bibles, have our nose in our Bibles, have our reading our Bibles, so that we can have discernment. Ready to quote it, ready to discern. Well, there's James. I believe that he showed great discernment in understanding life and the Scriptures. And then the second thing we see James is just wisdom. And if ever we're going to keep unity, unity needs discernment. Unity needs wisdom as well. And listen to what he concluded. Verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is. Now, this isn't so much that I'm coming down with a judgment. This is how it's got to be. He's more saying that here's my perspective. As I, here's my take. Here, here's what I think. Here's my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. His recommendation basically is twofold. First of all, let's not trouble the Gentiles, but we should write to them to guide them to how it is to live. And then he gives a a reason for that, because Moses is read in every synagogue. So let's look at his first recommendation, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And at this point, James reveals his, his thoughts. He's not on the side of those who say the Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. He's not on that side. He says, no, we, we should not trouble the Gentiles. We don't need to give them the command. To which all the men of the congregation said, Phew. They're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not through the ritualistic laws. They don't need to become Jews in order to be followers of Jesus. They can be followers of Jesus straight away. God doesn't save them on the basis of a law. He doesn't require them to live on the basis of a law. I agree with Peter and Paul and Barnabas. But, but notice, however, the way he describes it doesn't mean the Gentiles, right? They're just saved by grace to, to live whatever they want. He even describes them as those who are turning to God, right? They, they've heard this message of Christ and they have turned to God to, to follow after him, right? So there's already a, somewhat of a change in their life. They've already repented of their sins. They've already seen the wrongness of the, their own way of life and they've turned and now they're turning to God to walk in his way. So they're, they're on this path. It's just, are they going to walk on this path of circumcision and law keeping? Are they going to walk on the path of love and worship of the Lord and, and seeking him in, in every way? You know, so it's, and this, this is true, whenever God saves a person by grace, you, you don't just continue to live as if you've lived before, right? We're, we're saved by grace alone, but that grace is never alone, right? 
it, it comes by a change in direction, about a, a new perspective. God changes. When God saves a person, He changes them, transforms them, giving them new hearts and new desires, new direction in life. Gone are the old desires. They want to walk in God's ways. They want to please the Lord. And there's the struggle with the flesh, certainly in the battle, battle that every Christian faces. Right? But there's a desire to live for God and to pursue God. And the question here is just, what, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we do that? Circumcision was only a matter of ceremony. It's not about ceremony. Coming to God is not about ceremony. It's not about going to church. It's not about right, having to, to do all these things in order to measure up. Though, right, when you're saved, you have those desires to be with people of God. You desire to pursue the things of God. You desire to know God's Word. It's interesting, that's the first recommendation. Let's not trouble them. They've turned to God, right? But, but let's write a letter to them to guide them, right? We should write to them, right? And, and, and here's what he says, we should write to them. We should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from what is blood, from what is, and from blood, right? Um, does that strike you as strange? It's super strange. If, if it doesn't strike you as strange, then you're not reading, you're not understanding what he's saying here. Okay? He says, no, let's not trouble them. Let's tell them not to keep the law. But here, we got four laws for them to keep. Like, well, well, what is it? How, how is it? Um, why, why are these four things? Why are we telling the Gentiles to avoid these four things? Is this our new law? Right? They don't have to follow the law, but they have to follow my law. To keep from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from things strangled and from blood. I mean, at first glance, it looks like James saying this. Let's, let, let's push them back into the law. The very place that Peter and Paul and Barnabas all agree that the Gentiles are free from. But that's precisely, I believe, where James shows his wisdom. Right here. He says, yes, they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But there's some guidance we want to give them. I think James understood, yes, there's this issue of salvation for the Gentiles, but there's also an issue of the unity of the church. In other words, right, the big question is this, how can the Jews and the Gentiles, as different as they may be culturally, how may they come together to live as one? Especially the wide chasm of their cultural differences. I mean, before turning to the Lord, the Gentiles fully engaged in the idolatrous, idolatrous culture of the day, which was stenchful to the Jews. They just could not have it. And so James says basically this. Here's a summary. For the sake of unity in coming into this church, you Gentiles, into the church of the Jews, drop your idolatrous practices. Right? Don't eat the things polluted by idols and abstain from sexual immorality. Don't eat animals who have been strangled and don't drink the blood of animals. Each of these had connections with their former life of idolatry. And with, with each one, James is simply saying this, make a break from your former life. Right? Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, do, doesn't mean that you just continue that way. You make a break. You turn from your sin. And every one of these practices were quite normal for the Gentiles of the day. Uh, the marketplace where they would buy meat was down by the idol temple, right? These meats were first offered up to God and, and the close association of these, this meat he bought there at the temple, right? Meat sacrificed to idols would have been stenchful for the Jews. 
And James tells the Gentiles in Antioch, stay away from those things. And sexual immorality as well. The pagan world was a sexualized world. Uh, dare I say it, even perhaps more so than ours? Uh, we just have the ability today to be graphic. But they exercised it, even part of their worship. And Paul says, stay away from that. And, and furthermore, when animals were slaughtered at the temple, right? in the Jewish temple they were always slaughtered, and the, the blood drained. Because the Jews, according to Leviticus 17, life is in the blood. Listen to Leviticus 17.10. If any of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. I will cut him off from the people. See, see to God, God wanted to lift up blood and how special it was for life. It's not, you're not supposed to be eating that. Right? The, the blood was shed so that you can live through the sacrifice and ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus. And so when, when animals were just um, strangled, they didn't bleed out. And there's a lot of blood left in the meat. And sometimes when the, the blood was let out, they, they poured it into a cup and that was a delicacy and they ate it. And that was an abominable practice for the Jewish people. And James just says, stay away from it. And interesting why he says stay away. He says, stay away for the sake of unity, for putting the Jews and the Gentiles together. Because here's the reason. Look at verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogue. You're going to read about these things um, on the Sabbath day. And the the Jews, this is so in their mindset that these things are so bad and so horrible that Gentiles, right, for the sake of unity, can can you give this up? Can you forsake this? For their sake, for the Jews' sake, bend a little bit, will you? Now, I don't think this would have come as a surprise to the Gentiles. They knew the, the Jewish culture as they mixed with Jewish people. They knew the Jews never visited the pagan temples, right? When, when they maybe mixed in the synagogue street, they saw the Jews, they were over there. But when they went to the temple, right, there was no Jew in sight. And they learned that the Jews hated that place. And any reminder of that place would have caused such a division, would have been difficult. Now, I don't think this is too difficult for the Gentiles they turned to God. They turned away from the idol. They turned away from uh, the idolatry. And so now they're walking in God. And they say, like, okay, we can abstain from those things. And I, I think that was the wisdom of James. James knew that these particular things would have been no problem to them, but it would have done a great job in unity for the people. That's the wisdom of James. Perfectly balanced. The ritualistic burden of the law. You don't need to follow that, Gentiles. Right? But, but stay away from the things that offend so greatly. And I just say this, oh, church family, would God give us the wisdom as we deal with these contentious, dividing issues of our day? What James was doing is bringing parties together. Didn't see eye to eye to bring them together in unity in the church so the church was never like, like fractured into two. And, and with this counsel, you know, really, he, he brought unity. Verse 22, my third point, really the point of my message, Right? Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And so they followed James' advice, counsel, exactly. They said, okay, this is really good. And, and look, look who's unified here. The, the apostles thought his recommendation was good. The elders thought his recommendation was good. The whole church thought his recommendation was good. It really amazed what James did. 
He, he brought, I would say, a healthy compromise that didn't jeopardize the gospel. It was this compromise in some regards. The Gentiles just stay away from that and make sure you stay away from that. And, and, but never, never compromising on the gospel. The church was united. And it's a great application for us in these issues that are before us. What we need today is we need the wisdom of James. You need the wisdom of James. And I think even beyond our, our, our church, like, think about your family. Uh, I know that some of you have um, unsaved family, come from a different perspective, and even you've got some rifts in your family. Like, we've got some COVID rifts in our family. Um, just different perspectives in our family. And, and it's so important that we need the wisdom of James in our family. Or at work, maybe you have different perspectives of, of life and, and, and work and COVID and race and these sorts of politics, right? You need wisdom to walk rightly there at work. And at church, we need the wisdom of James. Now, it's interesting, all these spheres are different. In your family, you need to have the unity that, that keeps relationships healthy and tender and loving, despite any divisions that you might have, despite your relatives who might see things differently. Maybe you have unsaved relatives who are on, on a different perspective politically than you are. Wisdom would would come together with the unity of the family, right? Making, making your, your understanding clear and yet accepting and embracing in love because they are family. And at work, you need to keep the respect to your coworkers. Right? You can maintain a healthy distance from some coworkers who view the world differently than you do, but you need to mix and mingle with them in a healthy way that you're not just, oh, hands off, right? It's not just my way or the highway. No, there's this, this wisdom and unity and keeping the unity there. At church, we need to keep the gospel central. Not political, racial, or COVID differences of our day. And for all this, we need wisdom. I love the promise of James, James 1.5. If any of you lacks what? Wisdom. Let him ask God who gives generously to all, and it will be given to him without reproach. And so when we need this wisdom, how do we go to the one who demonstrated his wisdom, right? We go to James and see his counsel and and it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let us ask God. You know, maybe James was, as he wrote this, maybe thinking about the situation when, he, when he's there at the council and, and a prominent member there, high influence, and he's hearing these sides arguing back and forth. You think he prayed? I think he prayed. God, give me wisdom how I might, how I, I might recommend, how I might lead this, this body, this council. And I think God gave him wisdom. God gave them the wisdom of this letter and these things that they should tell the Gentiles. And I think if you're ever going to deal with conflicts in your life, first of all, you go to Darren Weeby's small group tonight. We're talking about peacemakers helping with conflicts. You do that. That's one. But second, right, you, you, you seek God for the wisdom that you need in order to follow after those ways. Because God's help for wisdom is there. It's ready for the taking, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all and it will be given to you without reproach. I'm not going to chide you. He's going to say, okay, yes, you need wisdom. And we all need wisdom. We all need to constantly be praying to the Lord for wisdom. Keeping unity. Unity was established. It was wonderful. Uh, I just have two last points, and they're going to go quickly because we see that the rest of the text is just carrying out James' recommendation. So everything that James recommended was received, verse 22, by the church, and then they just sent it out. My fourth point really here is care. I, I want you to notice how in keeping unity, they, they did this with care. 
Like it wasn't just some divine edict from Jerusalem that was, was proclaimed and said, this is the way to go and pressed out through the Roman Empire. It said, all oh, church, this is what you have to do. No, they sent a letter and then they sent some men with that letter who would be able not only to read the letter, but also explain the letter, explain the heart behind the letter as well. And I think it shows great care. Verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And here's the letter saying a little bit differently than James did, putting the whole context together. Notice the care. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. A delicate issue like this requires delicate care. And they wrote a carefully worded letter. They sent it with some people who would clarify the heart behind the letter. Have you ever sent an email or a text or a letter that when received was received wrongly, like totally different than what you meant to convey? I have. And I think that's what they were trying to protect of. And, and I know it, it happened so easy to be misunderstood. But not only did they craft this letter with care, but they, they gave it with, they delivered it with some men who were men of integrity who could really explain what was going on. That's why it's so important to have personal conversations face-to-face when you have conflicts. I've seen it too many times of people fighting with each other, especially in the church or in marriage, and they're just texting at each other, and they're texting nasty things back and forth because you can text, and you just, boom, you're done with that. And then it comes back and harder, and you're just going back and forth. Why don't you, you, that, that's why I make it a practice. If I, re- if I receive a text, which is a, this is a bad text, I either email, but normally I pick up the phone and call. If that doesn't resolve the problem, I want to meet face-to-face. Because there's just a level of intimacy and communication which you can communicate. You can communicate one thing in a text, good administratively, right? Good, more administratively, email. A voicemail is better, and face-to-face is best. But everything face-to-face, right, in our day and age, that's just really hard to get anything done. But there are different levels, and and you need to care. You just go face-to-face. That's what they did. And I think on top of that, just the care of sending these, these men um, demonstrate the, the heart of, of great care as well in the letter. Look, look at verse 23. He says, the brothers, both the apostles and elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Does it strike you how they identified themselves and how they identified those of the Gentiles? These are the apostles and the elders, my goodness. 
Right? These are the ones who, who basically had charge over the church in Jerusalem and have influence over the church of the whole world at this time. And they say, we are brothers with you Gentiles. You're not Jews. You're not been circumcised, but you're brothers. Put them on the same plane. Right? It's not this air of, of authority, of, a, of higher, I'm high and you're low. No, it's the, they're both the same thing. There's no superiority here. What humility, what kindness, what care. And, and then in verse 24, they, they express their, their own distress of this issue, that this issue even came up at all. Verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instruction. In other words, we're so sorry that people have come to you preaching circumcision and, and troubling your hearts. We're sorry that you've been unsettled, giving you cause to doubt your salvation by, by some ritual that you didn't do. Certainly you're confused by those who told you these things. We're, we're sorry. We had no part in this. We didn't send them to you. We would never have done a, a thing like this. And we want to do everything to make things right with you. Right? So they sent Paul and Barnabas, choice brothers, and they sent Judas and Silas. We, we don't know much about these men really yet, but they're well respected by the churches. Uh, Silas is going to go on a missionary journey then with uh, the Apostle Paul. Um, but their agreement with Paul and Barnabas would have confirmed the message and heart of those in Jerusalem. And then, right, they, they spoke then, ending their letter, um, just not burden, burdening these men. Here's verse 28. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Seemed good to us. God was in this thing. Right? And, and again, you see the Acts of the Apostles, another title for this book would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's all over this book. And here it is. The Holy Spirit seemed good to the Holy Spirit to give them no greater burden than these requirements. And then they put forth those four requirements in verse 29. And then they added, if you keep yourselves from these things, you'll do well. Farewell. And what a letter. I think it just shows the great care that they had of just bringing this to them right, with people, with well-esteemed people who would risk their lives for the sake of the gospel, well-respected. They came in, they wrote this letter, and they just say, well, what happened? Well, we see that in verse 30 and 35, and so I'm calling ministry. Here, here's, here's really the, these, these men coming down and just serving. It's part of care, it's maybe just a little bit different, but verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation, they delivered the letter church come together let's gather together we got this letter being read and they just read maybe this was all of it or maybe there's more i i don't exactly know but right right here it was they would have spoken this word the 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 people on the stage would have been commended as yes we are we are here and we're just telling you after great care telling you face to face just stay away from these four things for the sake of unity and verse 31 we see that when they had read it they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Here were Gentiles, right? Receiving this letter, just saying, stay away from the idol thing. They're like, I'm going to stay away from that. I'm going to do that for sure. I don't want to offend my Jewish brother. I can do that. That's no problem at all. And the church then was unified, and they're rejoicing together. And then the four, I just got ministry here. The four who brought the letter didn't just say, okay, here it is, and spent 15 minutes with them and left. The sense is that Judas and Silas spent 
days there. And Paul and Barnabas spent months there just in ministering and, and serving to them. And look at verse 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they'd spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And here they were, just ministering their gifts, the gift of prophecy, ministering to them, spending some time with them. Right? They weren't in a hurry. They showed patience in their ministry. Just kind, kindness is often patient with people as well. You want to show care in a letter? You want to seek unity in a letter? You want to seek unity with people? Just be patient and kind and care. And that's, I think, really what, what they were doing. They, they didn't deliver this letter as some duty. They had a genuine love for these people that took time. And when it was appropriate for them to leave, then, then they left. And the same with Paul and Barnabas. That's what we see in verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the idea is that they were there, like they, Silas and um, Judas laughed, but, but Paul and Barnabas stayed. And it makes sense, right? Because they were at the church to begin with, and then there was this debate, and then they left to go to Jerusalem, and they came back, right? Where else are they going to go? You know, Judas and Silas were there in Jerusalem, and then they came down, and uh, they're going back to their, their home place. But they were there teaching and preaching the word of the Lord to this great church in Antioch as they ministered to them, keeping the unity of the church. And I say this, what a happy ending to a potentially divisive event. This could have ripped the church into, you know, in church history, there was a time when the, the Catholic church ripped with the Eastern Orthodox church, in like 1054 uh, AD. And it's like ripped and phew, this great schism is what's called in history. And, and, and never the two have ever come back together. I mean, which is okay in some regards. But here, the church could have had the great schism of the church splitting in two, never coming back together again. But the gospel prevailed in this case. God was faithful and kept his church together in unity. It, it survived some, some rough waters and came out unified. And I, I just think going back to my introduction, my prayer for us at Rock Valley Bible Church, we might experience the same that, that through the time of political church difficulty in, in America, the church might realize our unity in the gospel. Isn't that what James did? He, he unified everything on the gospel. Let's not trouble the Gentiles. They've come to God on the basis of the gospel. But let's just stay from those things that offend. And let's realize ourselves that as a church, right, we're unified in the gospel, not on political parties or racial identities or COVID policies. Really, we're, we're, we're unified on the gospel. May God give us all the wisdom to walk in unity of the church and to keep the unity of the church. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the wisdom of James. God, as he counseled to this church at Jerusalem, God, to keep the unity of the church. Just thank you for how they navigated this which could have turned out so bad, oh God, but turned out so good. And, and of course, we knew it would turn out good because Jesus promised to build his church. And the Holy Spirit was intimately involved here in seeing what would be good um, so as to unify Jew and Gentile and to keep them unified. And so, Lord, I would pray even for a church in America, how different it is. We're not the only church in town. If we split, people just go their different ways. And yet, God, you love unity. It is a precious thing in your sight. 
Paul encouraged us to seek and pursue unity. Even to his, his dying days, his letters always, Jew and Gentile, like, cast off your cultural differences and come together because of the glories of Christ and the gospel. Because Jew and Gentiles are fellow heirs of the body, fellow members of the church. And help us to see these things. Help us to rejoice in what took place at this first council of the church, the Jerusalem council, that the church was unified. God, that we as well might even see and evaluate how it is that we might need to act so as to keep the unity of the church. I thank you for what you've done here at Rock Valley Bible Church. Continue on, uh, God, for your glory in these days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.